0: Good afternoon all and welcome. It's wonderful to have you here today. In just a moment, I will be introducing my co-panelists, but I would like to take a moment to thank the Hoover Institution for publishing Unshackled, freeing America's K-12 education system, and for hosting this webinar today. We will be having a question and answer session at the end of the webinar. So feel free to submit questions through the Q&A function, which is in the toolbar in the bottom of your Zoom window. Now it is my pleasure to announce our panelists, Hoover Institution, Senior Fellow, Checker Finn, and my co-author, Justice Clint Bullock. Checker Finn has devoted his career to improving American education. He has served in numerous roles, including as former United States Assistant Secretary of Education and as a professor of education at Vanderbilt University. Mr. Finn continues to serve as an education policy analyst and as the President Emeritus of the Thomas B. Fordham Foundation. And he serves in numerous other fellowships, such as those with the Hudson Institute and Hoover Institution. Checker has published countless times and his most recent work, How to Educate an American, The Conservative Vision for Tomorrow's Schools was published just last year with Michael J. Petrelli. Checker, it is high on my reading list. Thank you for being with us here today. We also have with us Hoover Institution fellow, Justice Clint Bullock. Justice Bullock has devoted many years of his life to education reform and civil rights. Justice Bullock served in government at the EEOC, founded the Landmark Center for Civil Rights, and co-founded the Institute for Justice. Subsequently, he served as general counsel for the Alliance for School Choice, and as the vice president of litigation at the Goldwater Institute before being appointed to the Arizona Supreme Court. Throughout his career, Justice Bullock litigated for equitable educational opportunities and school choice. Among other notable cases, Justice Bullock defended the first Wisconsin school voucher program and spearheaded the litigation strategy for the landmark school choice case, Zelman versus Simmons-Harris. Because of Justice Bullock's work, the Supreme Court upheld the constitutionality of school vouchers in a decision that would lay the groundwork for many more school choice programs. In his spare time, Justice Bullock is also a prolific author publishing about education and immigration reform among other topics. On a personal note, Justice Bullock has been a mentor to me since 2017 and is one of the reasons I became a teacher and soon will be a lawyer. When I was an undergraduate at Notre Dame, I handed Justice Bullock my senior thesis after attending a talk he gave. We met for coffee the next morning to discuss it and remained in touch when I began teaching through Notre Dame's Alliance for Catholic Education Program. At the time, I had also begun writing on educational issues for the Washington Examiner, and one day I heard from Justice Bullock. He reached out about a new writing project, a book about what education should look like in the 21st century. That conversation became the basis for Unshackled, which we look forward to discussing today. I'm grateful to both Checker and Clint, as well as the Hoover Institution, for allowing us to do this today. And I will turn it over to Clint now for him to give a few opening remarks about Unshackled.
1: Well, thank you so much, Kate. It's just been a a tremendous delight to have you as as co-author uh, on this book. And I was thinking uh, before we got going that Checker and I have been friends and colleagues longer than you've been alive. Um, so <laughs> uh, I am so uh, honored to have Checker, uh, one of the nation's foremost educational thinkers, with us today. Um, and really, uh, you know, I, I, I look at these issues now from a, a slightly different perspective when I see the people who come before my court uh, and other courts in Arizona, um, all of whom, almost all of whom in in the criminal justice system have been miseducation, educated. And uh, I also look at the push for diversity on the bench and in colleges and so forth. And we've got a serious problem. Our K-12 system is not producing uh, the kind of qualified students that we need um, to compete with China and other other nations, um, and certainly to fulfill the incredible promise that every American was given in Brown versus Board of Education of an equal educational opportunity. So, as Kate mentioned, really, that the purpose of this book was to to conduct a, a thought experiment, and we invited all of our readers to do that exact same thing. And that is to imagine what an education system would look like in the year 2021, if we were designing it from scratch with all of the amazing technological tools that we now have at our disposal. And we certainly concluded it would not look much like the the system of, of educating masses of students in warehouses uh, as we do today um, and the pandemic um, has only has only sharpened uh our determination to to uh, uh, to really uh, uh, provoke a, a debate over uh some things that have really been um, sanctified over the years that
2: that really should be rethought a great uh, revolutionary book. It's a treat to be with both of you today. Uh, it's a treat to have known uh, Clint for about a thousand years and to uh, <laughs> uh, get acquainted with Kate. Um, and I will, uh, before we're done, uh, throw a few uh, anxieties about your prescription, um, but I certainly share your diagnosis. Uh, and um, uh, but it leads me almost immediately to ask uh, either both of you. Um, uh, have, do you really think we're in such a terrible state today? We were declared a nation at risk in 1983. A lot of people have been struggling at education reform ever since. That's 30 some years of education reform taking various forms in various places federal, state, local, you name it. Um, are we still going to hell in a handbasket educationally?
1: Well, I'll start off and Keith can join. I would say that. Uh looking back on on 1983 uh, fills me with nostalgia. We are far worse off today than we were then. Um, uh, Certainly nothing has improved in particular for, uh, or very little has improved in particular for the kids who need education the most, low-income kids, um, black students, Hispanic students. Um, The statistics are, are so depressing one in 14 black high school seniors is proficient in mathematics. That is an absolute disaster. Tom, uh, and, and the graduation for black and Hispanic students is, uh, uh, is significantly lower than for white and Asian students. Uh, Tom Edsel wrote in the New York Times just the other day that uh, fewer than one in four black students who do manage to, to graduate and get into college graduates from college within four years. This is a catastrophe. And whatever the situation was in 1983, uh, pretty much the only thing that really has changed is that we've spent a lot more money getting to the same dismal outcomes.
0: And I would just add on that as well, that I think we have more choice than we had in 1983, in the sense that we won you know, major Supreme Court victories, Zellman, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, to, to expand choice and Florida has really been a standard bearer in that regard with their tax credit scholarship program. Um, but we still don't have as much choices as being desired. Uh, and we see that when there are lotteries for charter schools and from an anecdotal perspective, the school where I taught in Chicago, small private Catholic school, 100% lottery admission, uh, and students, There were we had way more students who wanted to come than we could admit. Um, so I think we've made some progress on the choice front, but it is still not meeting demand.
2: Your, your book certainly uh, talks a lot about Florida, and we'll come back to that. Um, on the choice front, um, and on the COVID front, because we're just emerging, uh, at least much of the country is. Um, there's more choice uh, resulting from COVID, isn't there? Aren't people uh, uh, doing more homeschooling, more pod schooling, stuff like that? Is that uh, there's a lot of bad stuff coming out of COVID, obviously, but isn't there some good stuff on the choice front? Yes, well, absolutely. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Kate. <laughs>
0: No, I I think absolutely there there are positives and and silver linings from this terrible pandemic and choice being one of them. And I think it will be really important, uh, now is the crucial time for policies to be passed. And we have seen that many more policies are being passed. Um, West Virginia passed an ESA program, for example, Um, but we still have more demand than there is supply for these programs.
2: And that is the main thrust of the remedy in your book, is to create many, many more opportunities for choice and uh, empower parents and so forth. But one of you or both of you need to um, um, outline the prescription. How are you going to unshackle the system? What is the the main thrust of the book's recommendations for those who haven't had the pleasure to read it yet?
1: So Checker, and you mentioned it, you said it, Characterize the book as revolutionary and I I really hope that that's true because we really really need it. The Economist, uh, the issue that's on the the newsstands right now, if there are such a thing as newsstands anymore, um, talks about this really being uh, a Hurricane Katrina that came across the entire United States and you're absolutely right. Parents took matters into their own hands with these learning pods, micro schools, um, but for uh, low-income parents, uh, families, the situation is even more dire than it was uh, a year ago. So we think that we need stem to stern education reform. Obviously, public schools will continue to be the centerpiece um, regardless of, of how much choice we have. And um, basically, uh, very briefly, I'll, I'll, I'll classify our uh, uh, our suggestions, our reform proposals into four brief categories. The first is, is perhaps the most dramatic and, and rarely talked about, and that is cutting out the middleman. In public schooling, we are more bureaucratized as a public school system than Russia, which prides itself on its bureaucracy. And uh, we are organized; our public schools are organized around school districts, which have been obsolete for decades, and they suck about one uh, about one half of the funds out of the school system and contribute very very little, except. Uh, political control over the schools. Uh, So we would uh, look to make schools, much public schools, far more autonomous and have uh, funds flow directly to those schools. And those schools would have far greater autonomy to pay their best teachers more, to hire the teachers and fire the teachers as they see fit and to uh, design educational programs that best serve their populations. Um, the, the second really is, is an offshoot of what I just said, which is decentralizing public schools. We've learned so much from charter schools over the last few decades, and giving um, regular public schools far greater autonomy I think is, is very important. The third is to promote student-centered learning. Our school system is decades behind our technological revolution. And The Economist article I I referenced mentioned how personalized learning is the way that we escape our malaise uh, that we have right now. And we have the the technology to, at a fraction of the cost of what we're spending right now, really personalize education to the individual student's needs, talents, Uh, Abilities, and uh, we've got to be doing far more than that. And finally, uh, student-based funding. Um, We wanna have a funding system that resembles post-secondary education. Uh, Our universities have to compete for students. And if they don't successfully compete for students, they don't get that money. And transferring control over education funding from politicians to parents uh, would all by itself uh, effectuate dramatic change in the public schools, so long as we give them the, um, the ability uh, to to be flexible in return.
2: Okay, short, uh, additions?
0: I would just add on the personalization point, which was point three that Clint just mentioned, one of the best things that I had the chance to do when we were writing the book is Uh, Visit a few innovative schools in Chicago because I was teaching at the time. And when you're a teacher, if there are any teachers on the call, you hear personalization and it is such a buzzword in education. So I did some research and I figured out what was the most personalized school in Chicago uh, and ended up being the school right around the corner from my school. And it was called Intrinsic. And I went and visited and I really saw how they were reinventing education. And we profiled this school and a number of other schools um, in one of the latter chapters of the book. But really what this school was doing was just blowing up the idea of kids in rows in one classroom. It looked much more like a startup when you walked inside. There were kids doing individual work in one section and then with private tutors in another, working in small groups in another section of the room. Uh, It was just really, really rethinking the model of how instruction was delivered. And a lot of their work was done on computers and it was delivered to them individually. So it was literally the assessments were personalized using uh, learning technology.
2: Great. So I don't need much convincing about the, the four points in the model that you're recommending, but I do need persuading that you're still talking about what most Americans call public schools. Uh, It seems to me you've taken, by taking away the middleman and having the funding flow with the kids, you have probably taken away the governance arrangements that most people associate with public education. Uh, So help me with the way in which these are public schools and that public education as Americans think of it, remains the centerpiece of the system you're recommending? Well,
1: Checker, um, every single state in its constitution requires the creation of a public school system. And and that is certainly not going to to go away. I think it's still gonna be the primary primary means. But we would replace centralized um, uh, boards of education at the district level with school boards of education, and it would be uh, a school-based governance. The state would be primarily responsible for the funding. We wouldn't see the incredible inequities that we have across district lines, um, and would also be responsible for ensuring that schools um, uh, maintained uh, a basic educational opportunity. and obviously, parents would have far greater uh, control and influence in this kind of system as well, whereas in school systems like Chicago, where, where, uh, where Kate worked, um, they have zero influence over their kids' education and, and the quality that's offered. So I think uh, the combination of, of state supervision and intervention were necessary, state funding and school-based school boards, plus parental involvement and empowerment, I think that's a, a recipe for a more accountable system than the one where right now the the the, um, uh, the accountability is to elected officials, not to parents. So, and I
0: would just add briefly that it's fascinating to me that after COVID school board elections are some of the most hotly contested in this upcoming cycle. There are more people running for school board than almost ever before, I think in American history. So I think that's, that's a very good thing. We should local control over schools should not be something that is a vague promise. It should actually be a reality. Um, And, you know, parents are motivated to run by all sorts of things, but I I generally see that as a very good trend.
2: Well, it's probably a sign of some kind of discontent with the current crowd. (laughs) Um, And uh, that would be justified um, (laughs) based on the experience of the last uh, year and a half. I'm going to come back to accountability in a minute, but um, the first, let me say what Clint described sounds to me awfully much like charter schools as I have come to know them over the last 20 years. Um, and yet your main prescription in the book is for education savings accounts, which is a different form of school choice. So I would like one of you first to explain to our our, our our watchers what are education savings accounts and then why do you prefer them to things that people already know better, like charter schools, which after all is what I thought Clint was talking about. <laughs>
0: So I would just add briefly, I, I think we we try to focus on not one silver bullet solution, because that is where education reformers have gone wrong in the past. So we we do think that ESAs offer the most flexibility and the most personalization for the 21st century, but we do still recognize that the vast majority of American students attend what are known as traditional public schools. Um, so But I can also just briefly say an education savings account for those who don't know, it's a form.
2: Before you do, just one second. You said traditional public schools. Are you putting charters in that category? No, no. Okay. So go ahead, ESAs are what and how are they different from charter schools? Go ahead.
0: So ESAs are a more direct form of funding. Charter schools receive, the charter schools are publicly funded, but privately managed. And ESAs are more of a direct funding directly to families. So it's a form of backpack funding, which we discuss in the book, um, similar to vouchers and tax credit scholarships. But what differentiates ESAs from vouchers and tax credit scholarships is that the money given to families does not need to be used at a traditional brick and mortar school. It can be used at a traditional brick and mortar school, whether it be public, private, charter, et cetera but the money can also be used to pay for homeschooling pods or personalized educational services such as online school. So there's much more flexibility with how the funds are used. Um, And as I mentioned earlier, West Virginia just passed one of these programs. Arizona has an ESA program. Um, And it's also of great value to uh, parents who have children with disabilities because those children need personalized education more um, than any other family.
1: And Checker, oh, sorry, go ahead, Kate.
0: My last thought was that it also really helps enable homeschooling, which I think is um, used actually by a vast coalition of families, whether they be tech families in San Francisco or religious families in the Midwest.
1: And Checker, even though uh, people are not familiar with this in in most states at the K to 12 level, they are familiar with it at the college level. They're called Pell Grants and other forms of aid, where you can uh, use those Pell Grants for a wide variety of purposes, whether at a public school or private school or a trade school, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And that's uh, you know right now um, uh, there are an increasing array of. Of educational options available, both public and private, and allowing families to use uh, the funds uh, established for their children um, in the manner that that best meets their children's needs, seems to us to be exactly what we need. I agree with
2: that, but I'm also worried. I'm also worried about the uh, potential downside. Uh, which is the abuse of the money by schools that are in it for the money um, by uh, parents that make choices for reasons other than educational quality. Uh, I I guess I want you to talk about quality control here. Uh, Is anybody besides the marketplace uh, checking to see that kids are learning anything in the schools that you are contemplating?
0: I can play devil's advocate for one one second there about your second question, which is why parents might choose for reasons other than quality. Um, so, in my conversations with parents when I was teaching in Chicago, their number one overriding concern was safety. They wanted their kids out of their neighborhood from six a.m. to nine p.m. And my kids were in school very early in the day and they stayed until very late at night. Um, so. I think how we envision it in the book is yes quality schools are important but also parents choose for a wide variety of reasons um so I'll just push back on that one point and then
2: I I, I welcome the pushback but I'm also going to say from a lot of experience with uh, in particular charter schools in Ohio um parents making choices for those reasons which I respect I understand But those reasons don't end up solving the education problem facing the nation that Clint began with, uh, which is the fact that we've got a poorly educated country. Um, I've seen too many parents choosing schools for the reasons that you just described, safety, convenience, things like that that are very important to parents. But if the kids don't end up learning reading, writing, and arithmetic in those schools, the country's still at risk, isn't it?
0: Yes, I think that's true. I, I would contend they were learning reading, writing, and arithmetic in my school, but um, it, it was a good school. But the parents chose it more for the safety than for the quality, but we were providing a quality education.
1: And, and Checker, your concerns, I think, are are, are certainly uh, very, very important. I don't think uh, any of us would um, like the idea of, of money going to people who could... Uh, just blow it on on whatever they wanted. There are two um, main mechanisms. One is, is, ver- is existent with education savings accounts. And, and the other is um, uh, one that really is a matter of policy. And the first is um, that uh, education savings accounts um, uh, originated in my adopted state of, of Arizona. And uh, they were modeled after um, health savings accounts where basically you uh, have uh, a certain amount of money at your disposal, but they must be spent for the purposes um, for which they are designated. And um, so uh, for example, parents are are essentially given a credit card and the credit card can only be used for for education uh, purposes. And then um, they have to provide their receipts uh, to the state as well, and the state has cracked down on parents who uh, who did not have educational um, uh, intentions with uh, with the money. The second is um, that uh, the the state always has the um, the the power to determine. Uh, how to measure educational success for any children uh, for whom it, it, it spends money. And uh, uh, I think that, uh, uh, that testing is certainly an option for these types of programs and, and one that individual states would, would have to decide. But I have to tell you as, as in my litigation days, um, the parents that I represented in school choice cases themselves not well-educated, they were almost always single-parent families. Um, They were often drug-addicted, they were often unemployed, Um, and they knew two things. They knew that their kids desperately needed an education, and they also all knew where their kids could get a good education. And it was was remarkable to me because it really uh, it really confounded a lot of stereotypes that were thrown, <laughs> thrown in our direction. And so I think that uh, while the state uh, uh, has to make sure that all children are being educated, that the problem of, of parents who would misuse this program is far greater than the crisis in parents who don't have an opportunity to avail themselves of, of quality educational opportunities.
0: I'd and see. just the, the last uh, yeah. thought I would add as well is that, you know, we look at what the public schools have been doing and we don't really know how they've been spending the increased dollars they've been getting from both the federal and the state governments over the years. So accountability has to go both ways. If we don't adopt our system I think we need to put even more accountability than we already are on the public school system.
2: I'd be fine with that. i am just struck (laughs) with the oldest sort of conundrum in education, which is the economist's argument about is this a private good or is this a public good? Um, And uh, it seems to me the only conceivable answer in the United States is it's gotta be both. Um, And um, the parents are properly pursuing the private good um, the state has to be pursuing the public good, uh, which I think has got to be an educated population. Um, and it seems to me we've got to have some way of verifying that that is occurring, not just that parents are satisfied with the places where their kids are, are going to school.
1: No, I checker. I think that's, that's absolutely right. And um, uh, you know, I, I would certainly have no problem with accountability measures. The problem is, um, that oftentimes a lot of those proposals are uh, to basically shackle the private alternatives with the, <laughs> with, the, with the shackles that are destroying the public schools, like requiring certified teachers and requiring all sorts of other input um, uh, uh, obligations. And I, I know you're not, you're not advocating that, but, but one of the reasons why charter schools have been overall successful is that they they tend to be judged by outcomes, and if they are not successful in their outcomes, uh, in many states at least, um, they're shut down. And that's, um, uh, you know, I, 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 I think that, that that's the kind of model we ought to be looking at um, uh, for public schools going forward.
2: Okay. Well- related topic. One of you talk about Florida, please. I'm a fan of Florida education reform, too. But you make a big deal out of Florida as a kind of model um, in the book for ESAs and beyond. Uh, what's so great about Florida? And uh, why should the rest of the country emulate it?
0: I think Florida, you know, as we portray it in our final chapter, is really the standard bearer for what education could look like in this country. And they just provide so much choice to parents. Their school choice program is a tax credit scholarship, um, which is a form of backpack funding, but is funded uh, largely by corporations who receive a tax credit for donations they give to a nonprofit The largest nonprofit is called Step Up for Students. It then distributes money to students in Florida and it's a means tested program. So it goes to those who need uh, choice the most which are lower income families. Um, Florida also during the pandemic was able to shift very quickly to a virtual environment because they have a statewide virtual school. This happened after we had already sent the book off to press but it was a fascinating development that just underscored everything we had been saying. Um, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Kate. <laughs> no, no, I was done.
1: Well, yeah, uh, the, the, the Florida Virtual Academy, I think is the, uh, the name of it, uh, was a godsend for kids across the country. Uh, some school districts signed up to say, basically saying, we don't know how to do virtual education. Let's employ someone who can. And then uh, other states uh, were able to access through their charter school laws um, those, those same opportunities. Florida also adopted some reforms within the public schools that I think are, are very, very important. For example, they ended third grade promotion. If you don't know how to, to read After third grade, you're not automatically promoted to to fourth grade. And also one of the things, um, as we mentioned in our book, is if if you eliminate the middleman, you suddenly free up an awful lot of funds that can be used for classroom instruction, including triple digit salaries for the the best teachers uh, in the school and, and in the country. And um, one of the things that Florida did was to reward its teachers um, for preparing their kids for AP examinations. And we saw an explosion in the number of black and Hispanic kids in Florida, who now, by the way, outperform white students in in many states around the country, um, uh, taking and passing AP examinations. So incentives really do count. Um, we have a system right now where uh, in most states, uh, all teachers with the same qualifications are paid the same, whether they're the worst teacher in the system or the best teacher in the system. And that simply has to change. And Florida was one of the states that that led the, the way in, in uh, allowing teachers to be compensated for their accomplishments.
2: So... To get there, Florida perhaps had to be what we now call a red state where they could um, not pay too much attention to those vested interests of teacher unions and other established interests. Is that a fair statement?
1: Well, Florida, I would put it uh, a little less in a little less partisan terms. You, you have to have really strong leadership, political leadership. And one of the things that's been so depressing over the past year is we, we have seen movements um, uh, designed to eradicate the disparities, um, uh, uh, racial disparities that exist in our society. We've seen almost nothing said about education, which uh, to me means that that the main the main problem uh, is, is being ignored. We can't forget that the leadership in both Milwaukee and Cleveland was provided by Democrats. Uh, Polly Williams in, in Milwaukee, Fannie Lewis in, in Cleveland. And at some point, uh, it seems to me that uh, education reform has to become a more bipartisan issue because the people who need it most are people who are represented by and large by, by Democratic
2: elected officials. I agree with that, certainly. Um, back to Florida, though, the, the funding mechanism there, at least the one Kate mentioned, uh, which is the tax credit scholarships, um, is big by school choice standards, but it's small compared to public education spending standards. So my question for you really is, is are mechanisms like this Realistically, scalable to replace the or ESAs, if you prefer, uh, to replace the funding system as we know it. Can you do it on a big scale?
0: I don't think that would necessarily be the goal. I mean, Clinton and I talked about this a lot when we were drafting the book. But I went to a suburban public high school, and it was fabulous. So I, I think you know we, we don't necessarily need to replace all of the public school, the district public school systems. We just have a different mechanism for how they are run. Um, but that doesn't necessarily change how they are funded, other than the money is not going to the district, it's going directly to the school.
2: But it's going through a parental decision to take it to the school, if I'm Correct. following you correctly.
0: Correct, yes. But but hypothetically, you know it, if we were still faced with the choice of whether or not to attend my the public school where I went, a lot of parents would still choose that school because it was a good school. So what it would prevent is parents from choosing the, the poor performing schools.
2: But what you are scaling here, if I'm still pushing for a second, is a f- different kind of funding mechanism. It's not a check written to the school system by the state or raised by the school from local tax dollars by the district or the county or the city um it is funds flowing into the school through the parents from the from the state through the parents to the school if i'm following your system
1: well checker i might uh weigh in with a a personal anecdote um i i Earlier in my, my career, I went to the Northern Mariana Islands um, to talk about school choice, uh, which uh, gave me the slogan, we will go to the ends of the earth for school choice. But uh, I remember talking to a public school teacher there and she was adamantly opposed to school vouchers. And uh, she you know, produced the, the usual litany of, of arguments against them and, and I said to her, What about a system where the parents um, had uh, their education funds placed at their disposal and could use them at a public school? And if they spent them at your public school, um, you and your fellow teachers and the principal could decide how they would be spent. And her eyes lit up. She had never contemplated that idea before, and she instantly said we could finally get some new playground equipment. Yeah. Um, I sometimes think that the school choice movement made a, 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 a wrong turn um, when it focused on a mechanism that would be used exclusively at, at private schools and failed to encompass public schools uh, in a meaningful way in, uh, in, in, in a greater choice system. And I agree with you, the challenges to scaling this type of, of idea are tremendous, but we have at the end of the rainbow, <laughs> the opportunity for school teachers um, to uh, have far greater control over their educational environments and far greater compensation than they do today. And I am hopeful that, that the very same self-interest that drives parents to choose high-performing schools will drive uh, many school teachers to say, you know what, this is the kind of, uh, this kind of system
2: uh, in which I would thrive. Well, you need, I think, a state that's willing to uh, bite the bullet that your book is recommending, and um, and 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 try to reconstruct its approach along the way that the, the along the lines that you're both recommending. But I'm sitting here in Washington, um, and where the main debate is over how many trillions with a T of federal dollars to uh, pump into uh everything actually um including education uh so i got a sort of double-barreled question here that i'm not sure is answered in the book so let me try you um is there a federal role in your recommendations and that's question part one part two will existing federal programs get in the way of your recommendations I'm thinking of things like special ed entitled a lot of formulas that go through districts as we know them that are that take for granted the top down system that we have today. So, uh,
1: Checker, I do think that there is uh, uh, an appropriate federal uh, role, and I hope uh, my fellow libertarians don't uh, uh, don't uh, burn me an effigy for saying that. But I do think that federal civil rights protections were were very hard fought and have to be maintained. Um, the answer to your second question is yes, emphatically, um, but uh, uh, those obstacles I think can be surmounted. And once again, uh, the way has largely been led by charter schools, which are public schools and are subject to the very same federal requirements uh, as other types of public schools. And uh, uh, they have been able to either modify um, uh, the laws and regulations or uh, adapt their own model um, in a way that, um, and, and that often involves pooling resources. Um, that, uh, that means that, that these uh, laws and regulations have not been um, a devastating obstacle.
2: So you're saying there are workarounds on those things, or could be. Uh, could that's be. not, a, not a, fatal, a fatal problem. Exactly. Uh, we've both been generous with, with me. I hope more questions than you really wanted. Um, I, I hear that our studio audience, so to speak, has some questions of its own. And I think Kate's been looking at them, so I'm gonna throw the ball back to her. Thank you. Thank you so much, Checker.
0: Yes. You haven't heard
2: the last from me. Go ahead, Kate.
0: (laughs) Uh, So the first question that I'd like to pick up with is from Dave, and he asks, how much can be accomplished without parental interest? The Asian model shows just how important support at home is. How do we get parents actively engaged? Which I think is just a great question, based off of what we have seen during COVID. So, either of you would like to chime in first? I'll defer.
1: Well, I sort of alluded to the to the um, uh, to the response to this, um, and and Dave is, I think, absolutely right with regard to his premise. Um, but uh, in in the families that I represented in in the school choice litigation battles, I was very happy to discover that even though the parents were unable to um, themselves uh, help their children terribly much, they recognized the importance of a high quality education and they knew where to get one if the resources were at their disposal. One of the um, unreported phenomena of the micro-schooling movement over the last year has been uh, in the minority community with micro schools opening in in churches um, and uh, parents discovering a safe place and a high quality academic environment for their their kids. So while obviously the ideal is an engaged family that can actually weigh in and help their kids, um, for parents who, who aren't able to do that, uh, the, the best opportunity is to make
2: uh, uh, choices available to them. I, I agree with that. I'm just going to m- mention two other sort of parent populations that worry me a little. Uh, one is the smug middle-class parent who <laughs> um, is wrongly satisfied with the education their child is getting. Uh, because the real estate agent told them they're living in a neighborhood with a great public school or something like that. And the fact of the matter is they're not learning very much. And then there is a small population of kids, I think we have to acknowledge who do not have functional adults in their lives. Kids in foster care, kids in other institutional arrangements, orphans. Um, It's uh, kids who do not have functional parents or caregivers sometimes. So it's not a big population but this is where the kind of um, safety net element of the state's role does have to come into play somehow uh, in all of these arrangements. Um, back to you, Kate.
0: No, I think that's that's a great point and is well taken. I taught, unfortunately, many students with unstable home situations, so I saw it firsthand. Um, I, I would say, I don't know that that's a problem we address because at its core, if every child had a stable family in this country, I think we would be a lot better off educationally than we are. And I think a good school can do some work to plug that gap, but it's never going to fully overcome the impact of a stable household. So I, it's very—it's a great point, it's well taken. If we could be, do have one more question and unless Glenn wants to jump in.
1: Oh, no, 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 Q and A from the audience. <laughs> okay,
0: um, so this is a good one at, from Alex. What about the quality of teachers and the education they receive? In most high-performing countries, teachers graduate near the top of their class. At least in the past, we have tended to get our teachers from the lower echelon of graduates.
1: And that—that that is an issue we talk about in the book. Um, uh, I am a graduate of uh, a teacher training program, um, and you know we spent a lot more time uh, talking about things that didn't uh, that diverted from our subject matter expertise than um, uh, than becoming really high quality uh, people who could who could teach our our subjects. And you're absolutely right; we have to emulate. Uh, countries that have, like Canada and, and so many others that have really professionalized the, the teaching profession. Compensation is, is an element of that. And I think that um, we have uh, proposed the means by which to make that possible, which is uh, eliminating the middleman and, and putting that money into the classroom and greater public school Autonomy uh, to hire and fire um, uh, teachers, and when I th- when you do that, I think that it, it will um, uh, it will lead to greater uh, high quality professionalism.
2: It, just to add that that requires a degree of deregulation on the part of the state as well, um, because you know today's private schools by and large can hire anyone they think knows their stuff and is competent with kids. And that gives them a much bigger field of candidates uh, for their jobs and much more flexibility with compensation and also with retention and placement and all those other things. We've got much too much of a, your point, bureaucracy and kind of uh, locked in structure uh, in so many of our schools today. So we need a lot of freeing up there.
0: Yes, and building off of that, we have a very interesting question uh, that deals with state board associations, which is not even something we take up in the book, but I'm sure is a form of bureaucracy. Uh, so this question is from Kristen. Uh, the most progressive program my district offered was their home study program. This month, we learned the district decided to end this. Their rationale is there is no state education code. It's specific to home study and the State Board Association stopped recognizing home study. So all districts are terminating it. How do we stop the elimination of promising education programs like you this?
2: You probably mean State Board of Education or something similar to that, the state uh, rulemaking body. Yes. Um, for my sins, I served uh, four years on the Maryland State Board of Education, and I've uh, I've seen the inside of the beast. Um, I should also add that um, bizarrely because of state regulations and laws, charter schools in Ohio do not currently have the right to offer online options to their students. Um, And therefore parents wanting a hybrid setup going into the autumn in a charter school in Ohio have to get it through a third party um, because the um, statutory and regulatory arrangement is lagging behind is all I can say um, and doesn't make it possible through in the charter schools today. So there are all kinds of ways in which states can mess up um, what would otherwise make perfectly good sense, such as the home study program she mentioned and the um, Ohio hybrid opportunity that I just mentioned. I should say, I once mentioned to a very prominent U.S. Senator um, that when they turned responsibility for the federal stuff over to the states, um, the state I was in, wasn't necessarily going to make very wise decisions on, <laughs> he suggested that we should elect a better legislature.
0: <laughs> okay, our next question uh, is from John and it's an interesting one. One initiative that state legislatures, legislators, excuse me, might wish to pursue given all the new federal dollars in play is to bank any existing surplus public school buildings and require that they be made available for new schools that you envision. Getting buildings today remains a major headache. Has any state solved this? I'm curious what Checker thinks about this because of your experience at the federal level.
2: Well, there's federal dollars and there's also states and districts willingness to do stuff with their buildings. Uh, this is a commingling of the two issues um the federal dollars are now coming with with uh time limits i mean not not real strict time limits i believe districts have um and schools have uh, about five six years to spend the relief dollars that they're getting but not indefinitely um an issue with school buildings has been that uh even when states pass laws saying they should be made, that disused buildings should be made available for things like charter schools. Um, They're often districts that own the buildings or cities that own the buildings find all sorts of excuses for not doing that. Uh, They'll say, well, we're using that building as a school warehouse. Um, or, or, or something else. Meanwhile, charter schools are desperately operating in church basements and, uh, um, you know, leased, leased spaces and stuff like that. So it's a, real, it's a real issue of willingness at the state level and the district level to do anything like that with their buildings.
0: Any final thoughts from you on this, Clint?
1: And no, then I think we should. No, I, I entirely concur with, uh, uh, with Checkers analysis.
0: Wonderful. Well, uh, do either of you have final thoughts you'd wanna share in general? Besides, of course, buy the book, if you're interested and you wanna learn more, and if you're a parent, get involved, run for school board. Um, We hope that you will be elected.
2: Run for school board, run for state legislature, start a school, uh, get on the board of the school, uh, be fussy about the school your child goes to, Demand a better school for your child. Um, there are an awful lot of to-dos tucked away in your in your excellent book. I congratulate you both on writing it, and hope that lots and lots of people will learn from it. Well, I I would add um, and and thank
1: you so much, Checker and and Kate uh, uh, for uh, uh, for your thoughts today. Um, this is. A huge challenge, and we, we really didn't discuss this at the national or at the international level. Um, we are looking up at the likes of Slovenia and, uh, uh, and, and other countries that we would never have thought could possibly be our competitors in the educational arena. And the country that is most concerning is, of course, China, um, which I know uh, Hoover. Foreign policy scholars will tell you is an existential threat to the United States, and they are absolutely destroying us in K-12 education. One of the statistics from our book that that was most alarming to me when I uh, when I discovered it is that the ten the bottom ten percent of Shanghai students economically, the poorest ten percent, outperform the richest. of American students in math. If that continues to be the case, uh, you know, the the American era uh, will come to an end. This is a a national crisis, uh, but it's also a national opportunity um, because over the last year, I think a lot of people who were, as uh, as Checker mentioned, the middle-class parents who have been very satisfied with a, a very deficient product have uh, become awakened (laughs) and uh, hopefully um, they will become advocates for change.
0: Well, I think we are good to wrap up and we appreciate all of you uh, tuning in today and to Hoover for hosting us.